three years. She was a part of our Vision Pathway program for a couple years, um, and she hung around to finish school. We appreciate that, and uh, she's not quite sure what's going on next, but she's going to head home um, so that she can not spend as much money while she figures out where the Lord's calling her next. So if you get a chance, say um, hi and, and give uh, Jackie blessings as she heads out to do the Lord's work wherever he calls her next. All right, we continue our work and look through the Ten Commandments. We come to the Eighth Commandment. It's been a heavy couple weeks, hasn't it? I mean, two weeks on murder, followed by adultery. I was, frankly, I was a little bit relieved just to get to stealing. Um, oh, yes, just stealing this morning. Hooray. <laughs> Don't have anybody, no parents yelling and screaming at me. You have defiled our children. Um, no one did that, by the way. Um, that's just my great fear in my head as uh, what's going to happen. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, here's what the Eighth Commandment says. You guys probably got it pretty good. You shall not steal. Steal. You shall not steal. You know, I, some of you might be very dismayed by this, that I'm continuing this Ten Commandments series through this season of the year, right? I mean, it's not very lovely to do a Ten Commandments series during the Christmas season, I mean, none of us feel really bubbly talking about adultery and stealing and murder during the, you know, why couldn't I have done an Advent? Well, here's the deal. I do one every other year, people. That's my rule. I do an Advent series every other year, and so this year we're continuing our normal series, and next year we'll go and we'll have a, a wonderful Advent. But this morning, I'm going to throw you a bone. I'm going to throw you a Christmas bone. We're going to talk about the great villains of Christmas the great villains of Christmas. Because you know what? The three great historic villains, the holy tr Christmas uh, trinity of Christmas villainy are who? The Grinch, Scrooge, and Mr. Potter are the great, the great historic villains of Christmas movies. And they all have something in common. They're all guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment. They're all guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment. We're gonna look at stealing this morning. Oh, fun. How, how we steal, why we steal, when we change. That's your points for this morning. We're going to first, we're going to dive right in. How we steal. I need to convince you, many of you, that you actually do steal. How do we steal? Well, I'm going to say it like this, and isn't this is going to be so Christmassy of me. You can steal first like the Grinch. You can steal first like the Grinch. And here's what I mean by that. You can steal via just straight up common theft. You can take someone else's stuff. We normally think of guys wearing masks in black and white stripes when we think of theft, but that is not the majority of theft in America. I mean, most Americans who aren't supporting a drug habit won't break into other people's homes and take their things. But there are some forms of thievery that we seem to have no problem with, such as stealing from our companies, supplies, or cheating on our expense forms. There's a huge problem, actually, of stealing in our society from your employer. In fact, according to a 2003 survey, U.S. retailers lost $33.6 billion related to internal theft within the company. That doesn't even count the theft that goes on the lost amount of work during March Madness. How much personal use do we have of the various things at work? Not only that, but kids. Kids, we steal from our parents, don't we? Kids steal, take things from their parents' wallets, their purses, their refrigerators. That's where I usually keep my, find my kids stealing from me. There is some governmental and institutional stealing, isn't there? Many of you, many of you are about to have some tax bills in the next couple of months, and what's going to go through your mind is this is highway robbery. 
There is actually, there is unlawful and exorbitant forms of taxation that could be called and considered stealing. Some of you, in order to get back at the government, you do the same thing. You steal from the government. We call it creative tax solutions. Creative tax solutions. But we can do other things too, some more everyday ways of stealing. You can steal the reputation of other people. It's called gossip. You can steal someone's sex uh, innocence. It's called rape. You can steal words. This is called plagiarism. You can steal answers. This is called cheating, students. You can steal creativity. This is called patent infringement. You can steal by failing to repay debt. We call it bankruptcy or loan defaulting. You know, 11% of all student loans never get paid back. Never get paid back. In fact, 50% of all student loans currently are in delinquency. Psalm 37, 21 says this, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. The righteous man fulfills his obligations. You can steal time, can't you? You steal people's time when you show up late to meetings, you show up late, or when you show up unprepared, when you waste the time of those around you. You can steal someone else's stuff via destruction, this is what littering and vandalism is. You can steal verse via lazy or sorry work. When you're being paid to do a job and you do it half-heartedly and in a half-shod sort of way, you're no better than the guy who steals directly from his boss. Proverbs 18 verse 9 says this, he also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. So you can, just, so you can steal like the Grinch. You can take stuff. You can take stuff. You can take time from other people. Or you can steal like Mr. Potter. You can also steal like him. What was Mr. Potter known for? His greed, but not just that, his exploitative business practices. He was an unjust man. Leviticus 19 verses 35 and 36 says this, you shall do no wrong in judgment. In measures of length or weight or quantity, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just him. These are various measurements, right, in an agrarian society that people would skew the various means of measuring in order to get a better deal within the market. And Proverbs says this, that unequal weights, though, are actually, it says this, an abomination to the Lord. That unjust business practices, that giving a, a, a bid on a job and then buying cheaper materials in order to have less overhead to that job is an unjust business practice. Malevolent lawsuits are a form of unjust stealing, of, of unjust business practices, and it's a form of stealing. Those in business, are you charging fair prices? Lawyers, do you bill for the, only for the time that you spent on a client's work? Doctors, are you only ordering the tests that your patient actually needs? But Mr. Potter was known for his exploitation in particular, and the Bible has a special place. God has a special place in his wrath for those who exploit, and particularly those who take advantage of the poor. The poor. In Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, it says this, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the weak. In other words, what he's saying there is, you're so excited for Sunday to be over so you can get back to your cheating, un just businesses practice tomorrow and make more money. That's what he's saying. Amos is particularly caring or concerned about the poor. Why does God care about the poor? 
in particular when it comes to unjust business practice, because it is the poor who are most often hurt by them, who don't have the ability to defend themselves. Payday loan companies, for example, in our country, are doing a field day on the poor. These companies target poor people, those with poor credit who can't get traditional loans. In fact, the New York Times had an article a number of years ago uh, about this issue. The pay, they said this, the payday lending industry is vast. There are now more payday loan stores in the United States than there are McDonald's. Did you get that? More, more of these than McDonald's. The operators of these stores make $46 billion a year and then collect another $7 billion in fees on top of it. Researchers estimate that 12 million people, many of whom lack other access to credit, take out the short-term loans from these payday lenders each year. A cash-strapped customer might borrow $400 from a payday lender. The loan would then be due two weeks later with up to 300% interest on the loan. This far exceeds any traditional loan you can get from a bank and exceeds even the great loan interest charges that you have with credit cards. Now, on the one hand, right, it is a good thing to be able to have capital to those who have poor credit. It's a good and necessary service, but to do so at 300% interest is exploitative. And it's it's exploitative in particular to the vulnerable and to the needy. There is a reason why the place you'll see these stores is in the lowest aspects, lowest economic neighborhoods in our country. Meanwhile, by the way, in those same neighborhoods, you won't find grocery stores. It's called food deserts. If you were to go into the ghettos in many of our cities in our country, what you would find is there's no grocery stores and all you can find is convenience stores with unhealthy food priced at exorbitant prices because they, these people who often don't have vehicles to get anywhere can't find the food that they need. This is exploitation. This violates the Eighth Commandments. And brothers and sisters who are very good at business, what would the kingdom of God look like if we took care of this issue in our worlds? That there's, 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 there are smart businessmen in this church and in this community. Perhaps some of you great businessmen and finance wizards could put your heads together, could come up with a viable business model that could actually give loans to the impoverished in such a way that does not put them further into the debt, but actually helps them get out of debt. Could you find a way to solve this problem? That would be a great use of your life. So you can, you can steal like Mr. Potter a third, you can also steal like Scrooge. What was Scrooge known for? He was a miser. He was stingy. He was uncharitable. He was not generous. Most of all, the most scary form of stealing that we can commit is the one that Scrooge commits, and that is to not be generous in particular with God and who God calls us to give to. Malachi 3, verse 8. Malachi is an interesting verse. It's the last book we uh, see in the Old Testament. And Malachi is actually, it's a series of three legal disputations against the people of Israel. In which God is coming and saying, you're my covenant people. We're in a loving, legal, binding relationship. And yet you violated my covenant. And so let me bring to you a lawsuit against Israel. And he brings three cases against them. In the context of that, he says this in Micah chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God's? Yet you are robbing me, he says. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God's answer, in your tithes and contributions. What is fascinating about this text is this, is if it was just talking about the lack of generousness giving, then it would just say, you're just being stingy. You're being stingy. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, you're robbing me, God says. 
And the context here is God addressing his people in the midst of this legal dispute for their unfaithfulness. And they ask the question, God, how in the world have we robbed you? And God says, in your tithes and offerings. Now, the tithes is not a word that you don't hear super often today. It's a legal term in the Old Testament, but it's also just a general measurement. It literally means 10, a tenth or 10%. It meant 10% of their produce or 10% of their income. They were to give God their best. In fact, they weren't just supposed to give God 10%, just any 10% of their fruits or their wealth. They were supposed to give him the first fruits as an agrarian economy. In other words, it is not their leftovers, it is their bestovers that they're supposed to give to God. This is quite different than the way we give, right? We do our budget and then we figure out at the end how much we can give to God. God says, no, you give your first 10%. They were both giving less than 10% and they were not giving their best. And the implications for this are profound. God expected his people to dedicate at least a tenth of their wealth and income and give it to him. And if they fail to do so, God says, it's highway robbery against me. It's robbery. Now, understand the logic here because it leads to a very important principle. Who can, you can only rob from someone who is the rightful owner. Therefore, what's the implication? What is God saying? The principle is this. God owns everything. Everything. You own nothing. I love the great Bill Cosby. It's, it's, he's persona non grata, so we'll just forget that for just a moment. But there was a great episode of, of the Bill Cosby show, which is one of the few shows I was able to watch as a kid. And I remember in one of the shows there, in which you remember that Bill Cosby is a doctor and his wife is a lawyer, they're quite a wealthy family. And one day, one of his daughters came in and was very upset because she said all the kids at school were saying that she's a rich girl and she was very upset by this. And he looked at her and he said, wait a second, wait a second, you go back and tell them you aren't rich Your parents are rich. You have nothing. You have nothing. God is the owner of everything. God made the world. God owns the world. God sustains the world. Everything you have belongs to God. The psalmist says this, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Everything is his. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, during the first biblical building fund campaign, David is saying this, as the people of Israel offering their funds to build the temple, David prays this. He says, all this abundance that we have provided to build a house for your holy name, all of it is from your hands. All of it is from your hands. God owns everything, and we are merely managing his assets. Reformed theologian, a guy named Gordon Spikeman, once wrote, that there are roughly four kinds of relationships people have with money and possessions in this world. Here's what they are. If one person says this, what is yours is mine and I'll take it, says the robber. What is mine is mine and I'll keep it, says the stingy capitalist. What is mine is yours, so I'll contribute it, says the humanistic socialist. And what is mine is God's, so I'll give it, says the biblical Christian. These are four radically different worldviews. God owns everything. Now, here is what we need to understand. Not only is God the owner, but when God gives it to us, it doesn't mean that he has relinquished ownership of it. It means you are the steward. You are to use God's funds as God has dictated and to accomplish his purposes. Therefore, we are not owners of money. We are money managers. When you give an offering in church, you are not bringing your money as the owner. You're simply giving your money back to the owner that he has already given to you and that he dictates that you need to give back to him. It's kind of like when your kids buy you Christmas gifts for Christmas, right? 
My children are going to buy, buy me Christmas gifts. But with whose money will they buy those Christmas gifts? In other words, my kids will buy me gifts with my money that I gave them. This is what God calls us to do, to use our, the money that he has given us to give him gifts, an offering of praise. The idea that you have not ceased to be a thief until you are now generous is actually affirmed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Here's what it says. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What is the principle here? You have not ceased to stop thieving until you have started to work and become generous. That is the principle that's being communicated in Ephesians chapter four. You don't simply, you have not stopped to be a thief until you are now generous, but how generous, right? That's the question. That's the question we all want. All right, just get, 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 to, get to it. Just tell me. Tell me what I got to give. Well, yeah, okay. We'll feel bad about the fact that we don't do that, but at least we'll know where we stand. How generous do I have to be to not be stealing from God with my lack of generosity? Now, what was, what was the tithe? Remember, God says, you're robbing from me unless you tithe. It was the 10%, right? It was the tithe. Now, understand this. In the New Testament, the New Testament is annoyingly silent and conspicuously silent about this topic, except for a very few places. And for example, in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 23, Jesus scolds the Pharisees because they tithe, but they don't give their whole life to the Lord. And here's what Jesus says. He said, you should have tithed and had a spirit of love and affection for those around you. But what we see is this. It is that the Old Testament, that the tithe in the New Testament is simply considered this. It's simply considered the floor Jesus reaffirms the tithe as a great guide to us. And yet, here's the question for us as New Testament believers. Do we have to continue to give the 10%? Well, whether, whether the New Testament is super clear on this or not, here's the question I would ask you. If the 10% was the standard for Old Testament believers, today as New Testament believers on the other side of Jesus, are, have we become to know more or less about grace or has more or less sacrifice been given to you by God's? More or less generosity been given to re- revealed to New Testament believers and to Old Testament believers? It is, it is a hypothetical question, way more. The graciousness of God has been displayed on in, manifestly in amazing ways to the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what we see in the New Testament is this. We see this, is we never see it less than 10%. There is great freedom, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we see it is never less than 10%. Why? Because of the great freedom that we have is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you understand grace, you love to give. So let me ask you this question. Are you robbing God? Has the spirit of the living God convicted you and his word convicted you about how much you're supposed to give? Are you robbing God? Two of the most prominent sociologists, Christian sociologists today, they've actually replaced George Barna as the most prominent and intellectually driven uh, sociologist, a man named Christian Smith, another man named Michael Emerson. They finished a landmark study a couple years ago on Christian charitable giving called Passing the Plates, and they, their findings are found in that book. And here are some of the facts that they gave on American Christian giving. The average giving per church-going household is less than 3%. of all Christians give less than 2% of their income away to any or all causes. This isn't just to the church. This is to any cause. Less than 9% of all Christians give 10% of their income. 
Did you hear that? Less than 9%. More than 20% of U.S. Christians give nothing to anyone for any cause. Nothing. One-fifth of Christians give nothing to anyone. These are sociologists who are working in some of the most prominent universities in country, and they're asking this question, and they're trying to solve this riddle. Here's the riddle to them. It's this, that the American church is the single most affluent group of Christians in the 2,000-year history of the church, and yet we give less money than almost any other group that they can find. You think, we, we, think, we think greed and stinginess and thievery looks like Scrooge or the Grinch or Mr. Potter. But according to these authors and according to these statistics, greed looks like the average American Christian. That's what it looks like. So let me ask you this. Have you grown up to be a thief? One who thieves from God? Have you grown up to be a Grinch or a Mr. Potter or a Scrooge when it comes to your money? My research for this, I saw a survey that said that 90% of American Christians claim to have never broken the Eighth Commandment, which makes you believe that 90% of American Christians have broken the Ninth Commandment. That's how we steal. There's many ways to steal, but the most dangerous of which is, are you stealing from God? So why? Why do we steal? Why do we feel this need to be stingy and not be generous with what God has given to us? Listen, there's some hard issues here about significance and security. Let me tap into them this way, though. We steal for, I'm going to give you three reasons this morning real quick. I'm going to move through these fast. But just to kind of maybe begin to get you to think about what's going on underneath the surface. First, you steal because we're lazy. We're lazy. Ephesians 4.28 says, right, we read it earlier, that this thief is to begin to do what? To work. The opposite of stealing is working hard and giving money away. So why do we steal via cheating, for example? Well, sometimes it's because we don't want to actually have to study for the test. It's just easier to cheat than to have to work hard to prepare. Why do we steal on our taxes? Because the tax bill would be too difficult for us, and we'd have to set more aside for it. It's, or why do we steal in regards to bad business deals? Well, it's easier to overcharge people for one sale than it is to do the extra work to get two sales. What, where, is there, where is there financial laziness in your life? Some of you have been stealing from God for many years because you simply refused to budget, and therefore you've been poor stewards of your money. Sometimes it's just that we don't want to work hard for this because we don't want to do the hard work of waiting for a good thing. And so we demand that God give it to us right now. So sometimes it's laziness. I'd also say this. Maybe we steal not just because of our laziness, but also maybe the second reason, because of our position because of our position. And by this, I mean uh, kind of our position in life. Let me, let me see if some of these things sound familiar to you. The impoverished person, or let's say the person who's low on the totem pole steals out of a sense of entitlement that comes from their lowly position. I am poor. This company is rich. I should be allowed to take this. This is the Robin Hood mentality of thievery. Far more often, people steal because of a sense of entitlement, and sometimes that entitlement actually flows out of their poverty. I'm entitled to that position, to that test score, to that sale, to that vacation, to that compensation, to the credit for that work. You may have, have you ever heard yourself saying this, either verbally out loud or in your head? I shouldn't have to pay for this. Or I work hard for this company. I deserve this. This isn't a big deal for me to take this. 
Mom and dad, they've got the money and I'm their kid. It's not a big deal for me to take a 20 from their wallets. This and this happened this year. So God understands the what? Position I'm in. So I shouldn't have to give charitably and generously. You see, then there's not just this position, the lowly position. There's also, we also steal because we long for positions of power. Right? Why do people do unjust business practices? Because they long, they power. It's people steal to gain for themselves positions of power. They, they do it in business practices because they want to have a place of power in negotiations in business, to gain a leg up on the competition, to increase the margins in their business, to put themselves in a financially advantageous position. These, this is the reason why we steal. We want to put ourselves in positions of power or we are in positions, we view ourselves as being in positions of entitlements. A third reason why we steal is because of we worry. We worry. In other words, the, the more heart language of this is that we're insecure. Or to put it very bluntly, we simply just don't trust God. In Matthew 6, verse 28 through 33, Jesus talks about this, that the Christian is not to be anxious for anything, to not worry. And he talks about this, don't I care for the birds of the field and the flowers, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field? In other words, these things are little and small and almost nearly worthless, and yet I provide for them. How much more will I provide for my image bearers? This takes a deeper dynamics, looks at the deeper dynamics of your soul. Why are you so prone to clutch and grab and hold on to your money and say, it is mine, like a little child in the nursery with a toy why aren't you more open-handed with your resources because you're afraid you won't have enough and you know what you know what jesus is quite aware that we worry about these things it's why he talks about money more than just about anything else he knows that we worry about our money and our jobs and our possessions and our security. This is why Jesus says to us, do not worry about your life. And while he, when he talks in Matthew 6, he says, fear not little flock. He's being gentle with us. Jesus knows that our financial insecurities unsettle us. And in this, he is posing us a question. Where is your security found? Where is your security found? In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives a parable about a, a very wealthy man who had done well. His, his fields had done well, and he, the landowner has this great excess, and so he begins to build bigger barns for himself, and he says to himself, he speaks to his soul. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. In other words, what he's saying is you have enough retirement. You can go ahead and be relaxed. The Bible is not against saving. In fact, it commends it. But it frees us from thinking that our jobs and our financial accounts can give us the safety that we really crave. We really crave. See, the key word is safety, right? There's a reason why your investments, so many of our investments in the stock exchange are called what? Securities. But Jesus in, in Luke chapter 12 says that this man who builds the bigger barns for himself and builds an even larger portfolio of retirement for himself, he says this man is a fool, a fool. Now, this goes very much against the grain in our economy, because in our economy, the rich and the fool, those words hardly ever go together. But in Jesus' economy, they go together quite often, because Jesus says this, because money can turn you into a fool. We all want money, but it blinds us to our real condition. Rankin Wilburn, who's a pastor out in California, said this, foolish in the Bible is not the absence of mental prowess, Right? Some of the most foolish people when it comes to money are brilliant individuals. It's not a lack of mental prowess, but it's the illusion that we can secure our lives by our own hands. By our own hands. Now, if we stop and think about it, we know that our money really can't protect us. We know it can't stop cancer. 
We know it can't keep us from broken relationships. And if anything, money just increases our anxieties, doesn't it? What did P. Diddy say? More money, more problems. More money, more problems. God knows we are trapped. He knows we, we're trapped by our money and by our jobs, by our longing for security, that these idols promise things that we crave. So how do we change? And when do we change? When do we change? When does a heart go from stinginess and thievery and clinging to things to being generous, the full embodiment of what it means to keep the Eighth Commandment? So how do we change? Over a century ago, in what was called the Welsh Revival, in which God moved mightily in particular, oddly enough, amongst the workers in shipyards. It was a very blue-collar sort of revival that centered around churches in blue-collar areas. And one of the results of this, that there were so many people who were convicted by the goodness of the gospel and by God's spirit for taking things from the shipyard, that they had to open up an entire special division, a whole other plant on the shipyard, simply to receive back all the stolen goods that had been taken throughout the years. In fact, at some point, the shipyards had to put a press announcement saying, stop bringing the stolen stuff back. We can't handle it all. What happened to those men? How did they change? What got a hold of them? This is the third thing I want to look at this morning. And the best story for understanding life change of going from thievery to generosity is found in Luke chapter 19. You're, if you grew up in the church, you're quite familiar with it because it's a story about a wee little man. His name is Zacchaeus. If you remember Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. In fact, he is known in Jericho as the chief tax collector. And Jericho is probably the most wealthy city in all of the Israelite region during that time. In fact, he may be the most wealthy businessman or government collector in all of Israel at this time. Now, tax collectors in that day and age, they, we think of them as kind of just kind of boring, pasty white guys sitting in a building in Washington. That's what we think of as IRS guys. A tax collector was a traitor, though, in those days, was a traitor and a thief. That's what they were viewed. You see, the Romans didn't like to do the messy work of collecting taxes. That got people a little bit ticked off. And they also didn't know the ins and the outs of the business world in which they were, of the countries they had taken over. And so what they would do is they would hire people from the local ethnicity and nationality to collect the taxes for them. And then they would give them some Roman soldiers because they might need some muscle to back them up. And so that's what, what they would do. And then they would give a wink, wink, nod, nod to the tax collectors and say, listen, this is how much Rome needs. Now, if you want to collect more than that, wink, wink, nod, nod, then you can keep that. We'll just call that your pay, your salary. And so tax collectors were guys who would extract huge amounts of money from the very people that they grew up with, from their family and their friends, from the very schoolmates that they went to school with as children they worked alongside with. And all along, they would have Roman, Roman soldiers functioning with them like mob bosses in the neighborhoods. This is how they functioned. Can you imagine a worse person? This person is a traitor. This is a thief who has made himself rich on the backs of his neighbors. And the Jewish missionary, actually, there was such hatred for this that in the Jewish law system, they said that a tax collector was so low that they, you don't even have to, they, don't, they weren't even considered people. If, if, a, if a tax collector asked you a question, you could lie to them like you lied to animals. I'm not sure what the illustration was for about the animals. I'm not sure how many of us are lying to animals, which is weird, but that's what it said. You could lie to tax collectors. But in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus, what, what, what happens? He hears about Jesus and he desires to see him, but no one in the crowd, why? Well, no one in the crowd will let him through to see Jesus because they hate his guts. No one wants to be near Zacchaeus. No one wants to be standing next to him. 
No one wants to be associated with him in any possible way. He was an outsider. He was ostracized in every possible way. They hated his ever-living guts. And so what does he have to do? He has to climb a tree. He climbs a tree in order to see Jesus. So here's Zacchaeus, an utter pariah culturally, this stingy, thieving, traitorous man, this man with the deep insecurity of a Napoleon complex, covering over all his insecurities with his great power and his great wealth. But then Jesus invades his life. Verse 5, Jesus is sauntering along, like as Jesus saunters along, and a lot of people are following him. And Jesus has his, his pick of the litter as to who he could go see and whose house he could go to in Jericho and who he can spend time with. And he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree and he says, I'm going to go spend my time with that guy. Huh? Huh? And you know what the reaction of the crowd is? They're, I mean, they are hacked off. They're angry. In fact, they want to reject Jesus because of this. Because in order to go to eat with someone back then was to say that you're, they're your friend, that you accept them, that you value them. And this is a person they hate more than anything else in this world. And they're saying Jesus would, would align himself with this guy? Here's what Jesus says. Here's what he is showing Zacchaeus. What we're going to see in, in, in Luke chapter 19 is that Zacchaeus becomes an utterly generous man. He goes from a thief to a, to a man of generosity. But is, was it Zacchaeus' great generosity? Is, is that what convinced Jesus to come to his house? No. Before Zacchaeus has done anything generous, before Zacchaeus has turned away from his thieving lifestyle, what does Jesus do? Jesus invades Zacchaeus' life. Which, by the way, this is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says this, Zacchaeus, if you'll go ahead and sell all you have and give it to the poor and give it to the people that you've defrauded, then I'll come to your house and we'll hang out. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'll come to your house first before you've done one iota of change in your life. I'll invade your life with my grace and my mercy. And so Jesus comes into Zacchaeus' house and life. And what's the response in Zacchaeus? The response from Zacchaeus is extraordinary repentance, an acceptance and an understanding of grace that led him to not just say aside his thieving ways, but then to become an unbelievably generous man. It says that he, he says this, I will, first of all, he says, I will give 50% of all I owe, all, of all that I, not all I owe, but all that I have in tithes and offerings. In other words, he's gonna start becoming just a generally generous man and charitable giving, 50%, not 10%, 50%. And then not only that, he says, if I have defrauded anybody, I will find them and I will pay back to them four times the amount that I owe them. Now, what he's referring to here is the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law, there's all these passages in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus about if you steal something, then you have to pay back that whole, that, the worth of that item plus 20%. But there was one group of, of livestock that you had to pay times four times, the most valuable aspect of livestock. It was cows. Cows. Because if cattle rustlers would have to pay back four times. If they stole a cow and slaughtered it, they have to go and buy four cows in order to pay back the person they stole from. And so what Zacchaeus is saying this, is he is saying my sin, my thieving is at the worst. And so I will, not only will I complete the law, he sees his sin as it really is, not only will I complete the law and I'll pay back four times, but then I'll give 50% of my wealth in tithes and offerings. What happened to Zacchaeus? What changed Zacchaeus? He got a 100% tithe of grace slapped onto his life. He experienced the grace of Jesus who would do what with him? He experienced the grace of a Jesus who would trade places with him. You see, why is Zacchaeus in that tree? Why is Zacchaeus in the tree? It's not because he's short. 
You can see Jesus from the floor if people would actually allow you in there. The reason why he's in the tree is because he is a man who is rejected, who is scorned, who is scoffed at, who is hated. And so what do you have to do? He has to go up into a tree. And here's what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, out of sheer grace, I want you to come down out of the tree and into a feast of love and grace with me. Come down out of your place of being despised and rejected into this community and come into a a, a relationship of acceptance and affection. But how can Jesus do that? Why can Jesus do that? What about Zacchaeus' sins? How can Jesus enter into Zacchaeus' life with grace and mercy before Zacchaeus has done anything? Because Jesus will will trade spots with him in the tree. You say, not only in this moment will Jesus become rejected, and he is rejected by the crowd. Jesus is looked at as the pariah that Zacchaeus is. But not only that, ultimately Jesus can invite Zacchaeus into a feast of love and acceptance because Jesus will climb a tree. It says in the Bible in Galatians and in Deuteronomy, cursed is he who is hung, where? On a tree. What this means is that the worst kind of execution for a criminal, the most shameful rejection of society was not to be beheaded, but to be crucified, to be scoffed at as small and insecure and worthless in this world, to be rejected outside the community, and that's who Jesus was. He hung on a tree. Jesus was nailed on a tree. He was despised, and he was rejected, it says in Isaiah 53. Here's a man who deserved to be despised and rejected. He deserved it for his thieving ways, a man who has done all this wrong, and yet Jesus says, you can come down because I'll take your place in the tree. I'll take your place in the tree. He's gonna pay for all of, all of Zacchaeus' sins. Four times Jesus will pay. And we are fine of saying this, where was Jesus crucified? In between two, what kind of guys? Thieves. But the truth of the matter is this, as far as God was concerned, there were three thieves crucified on that day. The two men on Jesus' left and his right and Jesus himself, because on that day, Jesus took all your thieving and my thieving and Zacchaeus' thieving upon himself, and so a thief died that day. When Christ sat on the cross, he died as a thief for thieves amongst thieves, so that every thief who trusts in him will be rescued. This is why Jesus says, and why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for your sake, he became poor so that you might become rich. Zacchaeus comes down off the tree because Jesus goes up on the tree. And the only way you're going to see your wee, stingy, little heart change is by looking to the cross and the grace of Jesus Christ. To see that he does not give some portion of his life. A 10%. Jesus doesn't have an arm cut off or a hand cut off for his thieving ways. No, he has his very life taken from him. And you know, here's the question that people always want to ask when it comes to the tithing in the New Testament. Pastor, how much do I have to give? Do I really have to do this 10% thing? And as long as you're asking this question, what I want to say is this, it's the wrong question. And perhaps it shows that you don't understand the gospel yet at all. Here's the reality. In Luke chapter 18 and in chapter 11 and chapter 19, in all of Luke, there's all these discussions about money. For example, and and Jesus is all over the place in regards to how much we have to give. For example, in Luke chapter 18, there's a guy named the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to give how much? How much does he have to give away? Sell all of your possessions. So that guy gets 100%. That's his tithe. His tithe is 100%. Zacchaeus is what? 50. To the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, you ought to tithe, and that is good. And to the Pharisees, he just gives a 10% measurement. So you say, which one is it? Is it 100%? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? We need some consistency here, Jesus. 
Well, at this point, what I would say is this, there is no one answer. The answer is it's free. And when you experience the gospel and you have been liberated from the bondage of your money and the longing for what it will do for your life, the question becomes not how much you must give, but what you can give, what you ought to give. Are you asking the right question this morning about the Eighth Commandments? Old Scottish preacher, a guy named Robert Murray McShane said this, the more you understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you, the more generous you will become. And the more you grow in your sense of what Jesus has done for you, then you will become increasingly not just one who walks away from your thieving ways, but one who becomes radically generous, radically generous. Then you'll be able to sing, it says in the old hymn, right? Love so amazing, so divine. What's it demand? Demands my life, my all. Then you'll know you're not a thief. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, this is, um, we've heard the tithing sermons before. We've heard the sermons on giving, and so, um, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit right now would take these very simple, in many ways, trite words of mine, and that your spirit would press home the truth of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, that we would be able to get past the questions of how much, that we would stop having to ask that question and that we get to something deeper, which is a liberality in giving because of the unbelievable sense that we have of God's grace that has been poured out and poured out and poured out and poured out upon us. And so Spirit of the living God, I pray that you convict us where our lives and our giving and our bank accounts don't reflect the life of people who have been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, would you capture us? Would you take hold of our minds and hearts by this truth that there was one who came to earth and gave himself 100% for us so that we may have you, God. With that in mind, we say, Jesus, amen.